This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. Any kind of evangelism that only preaches justification by faith but not sanctification in grace is not only a small gospel, it's a false gospel. Evangelism without discipleship that's that's cheap grace tells us that conversion is the touchdown. But friends, conversion is not the touchdown, it's the kickoff, it's the beginning of the game. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, God's Will for Your Life is Simple, was preached by J.T. English at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, on August the 12th, 2018. The text is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Listen now to J.T. English on God's will for your life is simple. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Like I said, we're taking a second look. Last week, Trevor Joy preached a wonderful sermon asking us to consider what it looks like to participate into the Great Commission, an invitation to this adventure to be on mission with Jesus. Today, I want to I try to answer a really simple question for us, a question that often goes unanswered, but it's the first question we should ask when we look at a text like this. What is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What is Jesus talking about when he says, make a disciple, make disciples? That's the question I want to try to answer today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, or Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is discipleship? What is Jesus asking us to do as he speaks these last words to his disciples? What is he telling us to do as we go make disciples? You see, often this text is used to command us to do other things other than make disciples, like go, teach, or baptize. But in the original language, those aren't the commands. The command in this text, the only command in this text, is to make disciples. Go is not a command. Teach is not a command. Baptize is not a command. In the original language, the only command is make disciples. It could be translated, as you're going, make disciples. As you're teaching, make disciples. As you're baptizing, make disciples. The emphasis, the pinnacle of this passage is on discipleship. Often discipleship is misunderstood. People will think, if I could just know more of the Bible, or if I could just uh, get my sin patterns more controlled, or if I could just fill in the blank, that that's what discipleship looks like. But how does Jesus define discipleship? See, the term discipleship is used 269 times in the New Testament. 269 times. The word Christian is only used three times. It'd be pretty easy for us to define what a Christian is, at least subculturally in American evangelicalism, but can we define the way Jesus would discipleship? So I think that based upon this text, Jesus would say there are three things that are true for disciples. Disciples have been adopted by God. Disciples are being formed by God, 
and disciples are empowered by God for life and mission. Disciples have been adopted by God, are being formed by God, and are being empowered by God for life and mission. So what does it look like to have been adopted by God? Look back at the text, verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism, if you were here last week, you got to see incredible testimonies. Our brothers and sisters who entered the waters of baptisms and they got to share testimonies with us of of dying to self and now being alive to Christ, that they were one person, but they're now somebody else, that they have received a new identity, that they were once orphans in the world, separated from God because of their sinfulness, their wickedness, their rebellion, their, their sin patterns. They had rejected God. The Bible is very clear that Genesis chapter 3 has affected all of humanity, that all of us before God are sinners. Another term that, that we don't often talk a lot about is that the Bible would describe us as orphans without a father, fatherless in the world, lonely, desperate, seeking to make an identity for ourselves by ourselves. To be baptized in this text, though, literally means to be re-identified with a father, to be given a new identity, to be possessed by God. You see, this is harder for us to understand, perhaps, in the 21st century, but in the world of the Bible, one's identity and vocation are tied up with their name, what their name is, and who their father is. So this might make sense why often James and John are called the sons of Zebedee, because that was their identity. Or Joshua would be called the the son of Nun, right? So who your father was had everything to do with who you identified with. They even say this about Jesus. Isn't that Jesus, the son of Joseph? Because your identity was wrapped up with who your father was and what your name was. We understand this a little bit in our culture. I'm not sure if you saw, there was an interview uh, that LeBron James did this week. Uh, The full interview is going to be released in a few more weeks, I think either at the end of this week or next. He was doing an interview about, of course, you know, the new team that he's on, and he was doing an interview about his sons and his family and all that's going on in his life. And one of the things he was talking about was his sons. I'm not sure if you know this, but there is a great deal of expectations placed upon the best basketball players in the world's sons, right? That they might be the best basketball players in the world also. Actually, some sports kind of writers and, and, uh, and, and agents are saying that his sons have the chance to be as good, if not better, than he is. They're 14 years old. Could you imagine those expectations? To have the expectation of, of this being your father and that identity placed upon you? One of the things LeBron said in the interview that I found fascinating is not only is that expectation placed upon his son because of who his father is, LeBron actually named his son LeBron James Jr. And he said in the interview, I regret naming my son after me. And I understand that. I understand why he might regret that because he was unintentionally placing unrealistic expectations on his son. Expectations that his son is not asking for, that his son is not, is not wanting to maybe be true of him. Maybe he doesn't even want to be a basketball player. But he's going to go through life with an identity and expectations placed upon him because of who his father was and because of what his name is. Some of you might not know this about me, but my name is John Thomas English III. Uh, my wife said to me, she first decided she wanted to marry me because of my name. I was like, that's kind of offensive. <laughs> Don't you like me? Uh, but apparently she found my name more attractive uh, than me. Uh, so but that's just the way life goes sometimes. But I'm John Thomas English III and have uh, this identity of who I am wrapped up in who my grandfather was, Colonel John Thomas English, and who my dad is, 
John Thomas English Jr. And for my entire life, I've had this set of expectations set for me of what it is meant to be, to be in English. I actually wrestled with whether I should name my son or not after, I didn't want to name him after me, but after my father and my grandfather. And so Thomas, my son, is actually John Thomas English the fourth. And at some point, he's going to understand that part of who I am, my name is wrapped up in this identity, this family that I come from, who my father is and what my name is. I have a friend who is the third, and he and his dad had a really uh, wonderful relationship. And he and his dad eventually kind of had some heated disagreements and saw the world some different ways. And his dad came to him once and he said, I wish I hadn't given you my name. Could you imagine the pain that that would cause? You don't resemble and embody what this family is about. I regret giving you my identity. But I want you to look back at the text. What does Jesus say a disciple is? A disciple is somebody who's been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus saying? Go into all the nations, find the orphans of the world, the sinners who were lost, needy, desperate, broken, separated from God, finding their identity in other things, and tell them that they have a Father in heaven who loves them, who sent his Son to die for them so they might receive forgiveness of sins and is ready to indwell and empower them with the Holy Spirit. Tell the orphans that I want to adopt them, that they can come home. And what's different about this father than that father that said, I wish I hadn't given you my name, this father is entirely ready to identify with the orphans. He says, give them my name, an immovable name. So here's what Jesus is saying. The orphans who find their identity in what they do, what they have, their greatest accomplishments, their worst accomplishments, their best moment or their worst moment, tell those orphans that through baptism, through adoption, through conversion, they can become sons and daughters. And I will give them my identity. They're no longer going to be known as an orphan. They'll be known as a son or a daughter. You see, LeBron expresses some hesitation to name his son after him. I expressed some hesitation, and my friend's father expressed not only hesitation, but regret and doubt. God has no hesitation in adopting you as a son or daughter. Baptize them in my name. Give them a new identity. He freely and fully extends his name to you through the forgiveness of sins. So disciples have received adoption and are given a new name, the name of of God. Something uh, that is not in my notes, this one's free, so this could go wheels off. Uh, but but, but uh, something I'm passionate about here too, you guys, Matt always jokes with me that I'm passionate about the Trinity, and I'm like, yes, because I love God, uh, but, but because that is God. Uh, but, but often in discipleship programs, we're told that Trinitarianism is, re- is reserved for the elite. So let's leave that at the end. Let's put that in the appendix of our theology books. But what does Jesus say? Trinitarianism is discipleship 101 baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because there is no other God through whom we can receive fellowship and forgiveness of sins. And this triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives you a new name. 
gives you a new identity, invites you into a new, into a new family as adopted sons and daughters. So the first mark of a disciple is an orphan who's been adopted by God and is now a son or a daughter because they've been given a new name. Disciples aren't just adopted by God, though. They're also formed by God. We wouldn't just come into a new family, but we'd begin to resemble and look like the family, to resemble the characteristics of our Father who is in heaven. And that's why Jesus says in verse 20, we don't just baptize them, we also teach them. He tells his disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So we need to do some real talk for a second. I believe one of the greatest challenges that we face today as a church, whether this is the village church, whether we're talking about the contemporary church as a whole or the universal church uh, across all nations, I believe that one of the greatest challenges that we face today is we have put forward methods of ministry and a philosophy of ministry that believes that discipleship ends with conversion. We have removed the concept of learning, striving, imitation, growth, development from our understanding of what a disciple is. But evangelism without discipleship is cheap grace. Any kind of evangelism that only preaches justification by faith, but not sanctification in grace, is not only a small gospel, it's a false gospel. Evangelism without discipleship that's, that's cheap grace remind, or tells us that conversion is the touchdown. But friends, conversion is not the touchdown, it's the kickoff, it's the beginning of the game. Being adopted into the family is not the end of life, it's the beginning of life. So it's not enough just for us to be adopted into God's family, but as children of God now, we now pursue maturity into adulthood, looking more and more like Christ. So Jesus says, teach them to observe all I have commanded. Up until this point in the gospel, the only teacher that Matthew refers to is who? Who's the teacher? Jesus. And he says, now that I'm leaving, now that I am going to our Father in heaven, you're the teacher's. You go teach all nations what? What are they teaching? All that Jesus commanded. One of the greatest scandals of the contemporary church, though, is the scandal of Bible illiteracy. For the most part, the evangelical church does not have a firsthand knowledge of the Bible text. I call this discipleship by proxy. I've participated in this. It's really easy to think that I know a lot about the Bible if I'm around somebody who does. And friends, I'm just going to, I want to be honest with you. That's a great threat of the village church because we have one of the best preachers of a generation, but you cannot rely upon Matt to do discipleship for you. You have to be as familiar with your Bible as Matt is or as Trevor or Jared or Jen or me or your home group leader or your home group coach. You are required to have a firsthand knowledge of the Bible. Why? Because it tells you that you are required and invited into teaching about Jesus. But how can you teach what you don't know? Study after study has come out that suggests that evangelicals have never been less familiar with our Bibles or the claims of Christianity than we are today. In fact, a study in 2016 suggested that non-Christians... Secularists, pagans, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness are more familiar with the claims of the Bible than evangelicals are. They know more about what you and I believe than we do, in other words, is what this study suggests. In other words, we confess that the Bible is our authority, but we practice that we are our own authority. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. Some of you know parts of this. When I first came to faith in college, 
um, I was sitting down. I've, I've, this is, it's still so ironic to me. This is how God saved me. Um, I was sitting down for, I was eating a Whopper uh, in the student center, and a sophomore who was just one year older than me sat down with me, and he handed the four spiritual laws to me, and he said, I'm supposed to read this with you, like with the most uncompelling tone in the history of the world. And I was just like, okay. And so we start reading the four spiritual laws, and we read it in about four minutes. Like, it wasn't like he was explaining these things to me. Like, we just were flipping the pages. He's like, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. You're a sinner. Jesus loves, uh, you're a sinner and separated from God. Jesus died to forgive your sins. You can have eternal life in him. Do you want to believe? He's like, absolutely. This is the best news ever. Like, this is true. This is real. I can have eternal life in God, which goes to show that it's not our methods that convert people, but God converts people. Can I get an Amen. <laughs> So don't be afraid about sharing the gospel. It's not up to you anyway. It's up to the Holy Spirit to show people the beauty of Jesus Christ. But then I began to have this really weird experience in my relationship with the church and with ministries. I'd been a Christian for five minutes. Like I was a brand new baby Christian. And I thought it would be a really good idea for me to know my Bible. I've never read this before. This is, I supposedly believe these things. I should probably get to know what I say I believe. So I began going to churches and ministries and getting involved in things like home groups or Bible studies. Uh, and I was just blown away that a lot of my friends who'd been walking with the Lord for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, sometimes longer, were in the same stage of spiritual infancy that I was weeks into my walk with Christ. And many of them were sometimes decades into their walks with Christ. And hear me, that's, I'm not trying to bring guilt or condemnation or shame upon them. They hadn't been discipled. They hadn't had anybody show them the way. They had simply been adopted into God's family, but were never told, it's now time for you to pursue maturity and growth and eventually become an adult Christian to bring up other children and disciples in the faith. So a lot of us were left languishing. How do we grow? Who's going to teach us? I, just, and it, it, I didn't even want to go into ministry at this point. I just wanted to know my Bible. I'll never forget I was told by somebody, who's like, you should, uh, okay, you're, I was dating Macy at the time. Like, you're dating Macy? Well, you need to lead her in the word. And I was like, okay, uh, uh, let's study Hebrews. And we just jumped in. I had no idea what I was doing. But God was gracious and merciful to meet us there. But I didn't have anybody to show me the way. So I went to my pastor and I said, I, I'm thinking about ministry. I'm thinking about, like, I feel called to ministry, kind of. But more than anything, I just... I just want to know Jesus more. I want to be intimately connected with him. I want to pursue a relationship with God. Uh, what, what should I do? And do you know what his answer was? Go to seminary. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I had no idea that there was this evangelical subculture of colleges and seminaries and parachurch ministries. I just knew that there were churches. And one thing that's interesting about my story is it's kind of like a a fish getting placed in the fishbowl without realizing what the surrounding is. And I thought to myself, isn't that your job? Aren't you, aren't you supposed to teach me the Bible? Aren't you a pastor? Don't you run a church? And again, I wasn't trying to bring any guilt or condemnation or shame upon him. I just was flabbergasted that we were pursuing models of ministry that wasn't discipling people. We were just gathering and gathering and gathering and none of us were growing. We were a bunch of spiritual adolescents and spiritual infants stuck in the same place for years and decades and decades. 
So I had to move my family across the country twice to go to seminary, one for a master's degree and one for a PhD. And friends, let me tell you this. I know some of you think I'm smart. I did not go to seminary to be a scholar. I had to go to seminary simply to become a disciple because the church was not teaching me. I didn't have anybody to shape me and to form me and disciple me. I want you to hear this. First-hand knowledge of the biblical text, not knowledge through me or through Matt or through your home group leader or through one of your Bible study teachers, you having a first-hand knowledge of the biblical text is an absolute necessity of every disciple of Jesus, period. It is discipleship, spiritual formation 101. So start somewhere. I know that it feels incredibly intimidating, but this is where God reveals himself. This is where we come to meet Jesus. This isn't where we come just to be intellectual and smart. It's where we come to have fellowship with God. I think one of the reasons, at least as I have this conversation with people, many people are afraid to pursue a knowledge of the scriptures or a knowledge of God because they've been told that pursuing a knowledge of scriptures or a knowledge of the Bible and knowledge of God will actually result in a decreased relationship with God. I'm sure many of you have struggled with this yourselves. You've been told this. If you go to seminary, you might lose your faith. Or if you go to that Bible study or read that book or whatever it might be, you actually might grow cold-hearted and distant and far from God. And we've been told that there's a character exactly like that in the scriptures, the Pharisees, right? We've been told that the more the Pharisees knew their Bibles, the further away they grew from Jesus. So why don't we just pursue a relationship with Jesus? Why, don't we, why do we have to grow in an intimate knowledge of Jesus through the scriptures? We think that the Pharisees knew their Bible so well that they were aware of every jot and tittle, that they'd memorized huge portions of it, that they had become hard-hearted and cold towards God. Let me tell you, the exact opposite is true of the Pharisees. Jesus never once condemns the Pharisees for knowing the scriptures. He always condemns them for their ignorance of the scriptures. A Pharisee is not a Bible scholar. A Pharisee is a missionary who's missional about their own desires, about their own understandings of scriptures, their misunderstandings of scripture. So a Pharisee is more like a zealous missionary for their own cause, not a Bible student. A Pharisee is someone who doesn't know their Bible very well and is passionate about it. You should not be afraid of studying the scriptures. The scriptures are for life. Jesus condemns the Pharisees by saying, you search the scriptures to find life, but they testify of me. It wasn't that they were reading the scriptures, it's that they were coming to the wrong understanding and weren't seeing Christ in the text. So my experience as a pastor is that I have a passion for Bible literacy because nobody taught me. I'm passionate about this because there wasn't anybody around to train me not to be a pastor, not to be a scholar, but to be a disciple. One of the things that keeps me up at night as a pastor is the biblical and theological illiteracy that plagues us. And here's one of the things that I just really want to make sure you get. The studies that we talk about, like Ligonier and Lifeway, the studies that I just referenced, it's so easy for us because of the preachers that we have or because of the teachers that we have to think that we are somehow uh, not implicated by those studies that that's the church down the road, or that's the, other, that's the other pastor. Our church is theologically oriented and biblically literate. Friends, we have so much room for growth here, opportunity to grow in our knowledge of God. If we punt and kick the can down the street, we will miss out what God has for us, growing in our knowledge from God, moving from spiritual infancy and adolescence into adulthood. 
My experience, uh, I'm going to move away from my Bible because this is me just pontificating on one thing real quick. Uh, Being a pastor now and a professor uh, at a seminary, my experience uh, is that this, the the theological and biblical literacy is true for both men and for women uh, broadly. But my experience as a pastor and a professor would also suggest that nine times out of ten, women are more theologically and biblically literate than men. That includes at the graduate level, the doctoral level, that includes all the way down to our Bible classes and forums, the training program that we teach. Nine times out of ten, women are more interested in studying the scriptures than men. They're more interested in getting the text right than men. I've wondered for the longest time, why is that the case? Is it that, is it that they're smarter? And all the women in the room said, amen. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's not, though. God has gifted both genders equally to seek him and to flourish in him and to know him. It's not that one gender should know him, but I've come to the realization that one of the reasons that women are more interested in being excellent Bible study uh, leaders or excellent theologians is because if they want to pursue discipleship or if they want to pursue leadership in the church, they always have to be at the top of their game. Always. If men want to pursue discipleship or leadership within the church, All we have to do is what? Just show up. Friends, that's not okay. Right now, the current context of the village church, women are embodying and modeling the way of biblical and theological illiteracy in a way that I desire for the men to embody as well. The last thing I want to do is reverse the model. It shouldn't be nine out of ten times that the men are doing better than the women. Friends, we should be a community of brothers and sisters who are pouring over the pages of Scripture together, learning from each other, desiring to see men and women flourish as they come to a greater knowledge of God in the Scriptures. And we have an awesome opportunity in front of that to be the case, but we have to grasp after it. We have to be the ones who change the narrative and change the story I love this quote from D.L. Moody who says, I never saw a fruit-bearing Christian who was not a student of the Bible. So few grow because so few study. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, you have got to be, without any equivocation, a student of the Bible. There is simply no other way to grow in your relationship with Christ than to grow in your knowledge of scriptures. But I want to be abundantly clear, as Jesus says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This teaching is not just informational, it's transformational. He doesn't just want the disciples to know more things. He wants them to grow in their obedience. Teach them to obey. Teach them to observe. Another great scandal of evangelicalism today is that the Great Commission has been divorced from the Great Commandment. The Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, has been divorced from the Great Commandment where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. Great Commission work can never be divorced from Great Commandment obedience. If we're simply telling people that they can have forgiveness of sins without growing in holiness, without growing in righteousness, without growing in obedience and embodying the way of Jesus Christ, Again, we're not just giving a half gospel, we're giving a false gospel. Jesus says to make a disciple, adopt them into the kingdom, then teach them to obey. Of course, friends, not perfect obedience. None of us will ever reach that this side of glory, but growth in obedience, a desire and a delight in things that are holy, a desire and a delight to be more like Christ. 
A.W. Tozer describes the situation this way. He says, there's a widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior. That we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. In other words, the gospel is not justification by faith only. It's also sanctification by faith. A gospel that is justification by faith only that also doesn't grow us in holiness is no gospel at all. Another way to say it this way is converts find Jesus to be useful. Disciples find Jesus to be beautiful. Do you want to follow him? Do you just want access to his benefits or do you want access to him? Is he useful to you or is he beautiful to you? Those who are growing in holiness are finding Jesus to be lovely and beautiful and worthy of everything. If the Great Commission is not informed by the Great Commandment, it ceases to be the Great Commission and becomes the Great Omission. We're telling people a false gospel. Paul says it this way. He says, the goal of my ministry, Colossians 1.28, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. God's will for your life, if you've been adopted as a son or a daughter, is to grow you in maturity. I'm not talking about some kind of a perfect curve of growing, because unless that's true for somebody else in here, that has certainly not been my experience. Growth often looks really hectic, right? Up and down and backwards and forwards. So I'm not talking about growing in perfect obedience. I'm talking about being more intimately connected with Jesus. Are you more connected with Jesus today than you were yesterday? Through your failures, through your faults, through your doubts. Do you want to be more connected to him tomorrow? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Obeying all that Jesus commands. So the current crisis of discipleship has told people that they can know Jesus as Savior without knowing him as Lord, that they can be justified without being sanctified. Not only is that an incomplete gospel, it's no gospel at all. The good news is that we who were once orphans, separated from God because of our sin, can be adopted, given a new name, invited into the family of God, called son by God, called daughter by God, and that we would grow towards maturity and eventually glorification in Christ. So the first move of discipleship is orphan to child, but the second move of discipleship is from infancy to maturity. I don't know about you, but as I was preparing this text and now giving it, this feels really challenging. Can I get an amen? This is hard. This is, this is challenging and difficult. And we all are aware of the aspects of our life that don't look as much like Jesus as we wish they did. We're all intimately aware of our own ignorance of the scriptures or things that we think we should know, but we don't. We're all aware of our imperfections and our faults and our doubts. But friends, our confidence is not in ourself. Our confidence is in God and his presence with us. So disciples have been adopted. They're growing towards adulthood by being formed by God. But what is the fuel for this? Jesus tells us in verse 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always. I'm with you always. 
Look back up at verse 17. What's the kind of disciple that Jesus gives this great commission to? When they saw him, they worshiped him, and some doubted. Jesus is giving this great commission, this work of taking the gospel to all nations, not to perfect theologians, not to perfect pastors and great preachers, not to the spiritual elite who have it more together. He's giving it to a ragtag group of people who after the resurrection still have doubts. Think about that. They're looking at a resurrected man and it says some worshiped and some doubted. They were doubting their own abilities, perhaps doubting the truthfulness, perhaps doubting whether or not they would live or die or whether they were competent or incompetent. And Jesus says, it's through a community. He says, I can use a community just like that an imperfect people who are willing to give their lives for the sake of this mission. Worshipful doubters are the people that Jesus is going to use to accomplish his great commission. So our confidence is not in ourselves, but in God. Jesus gives us two truths that we can take as we seek to live out the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This mission will not fail, in other words. I am the king of glory. I'm accomplishing my mission, and I desire to use you. And then he tells them at the end of verse 20, no matter what, no matter your doubts, no matter your fears, no matter your inadequacies, where you still need to grow, where you're intimately aware of where your life doesn't look like Jesus still, or where you're intimately aware of your ignorance of the scriptures, or, or wish that you knew more theology, or wish that you loved your neighbor better, whatever it might be, Jesus says, you're the kind of person I'm going to use, and I'm not going anywhere. I will be with you till the end of the age. So it's the presence of King Jesus that enables our great commission obedience. It's not our skills. It's not our talents. We're not left to our own devices. Jesus says, I will be the one accomplishing this in your midst. I love that the beginning of Matthew's gospel says, call him Emmanuel, God with us. And at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, that's exactly who I am, and that's not stopping anytime soon. I will be with my church through everything, through seasons of darkness and suffering, through seasons of delight and joy and abundance, whether they're reaping or sowing, I am with them. So one thing I want to make sure that is abundantly clear as we, as we uh, wrap up, growth in the Christian life is not fueled by guilt. It's not fueled by shame. It's fueled by the presence of Christ. So if the Holy Spirit has brought conviction today, do not run towards guilt or shame. Run to the presence of Christ. The Holy Spirit's job, his work, is to show us our hearts, to convict us of sin, whether it be a sin of omission or a sin of commission. And then his job is not to have you run towards guilt and shame or inadequacy and feelings of inadequacy, but rather to point you to the presence of Christ in your life. So if you're feeling a sense of, man, this is really hard and challenging, good. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Ask the presence of Christ to invade that part of your life and ask him to transform and change you. As we wrap up, I just have two questions for you that I want you to consider. The first is this. Where are you on a regular basis where you've been given influence? For some of us, that's our homes with little kids. 
Maybe it's a, a relationship with a spouse or a f- group of friends. Perhaps it's a place of work. Where are you going to find yourself this week where you have some level of influence, authority, say-so, buy-in, whatever it might be, relational capital? That is where you're supposed to be living out the Great Commission. Certainly, do we want to be sending people to the unreached? Yes. We need to send church planters and missionaries and pastors to the darkest parts of the region. But we don't want to forsake our neighbors to go to the nations. The quickest way for the gospel to go to the nations is if all of us go to our neighbors. And so this week, consider, where are you? Where has the Lord given you an opportunity to bring the gospel to bear around your friends, your family members, your kids, your parents, whatever it might be, your place of work? As you're going, go proclaim the good news that there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, that orphans can be adopted by a father, be given a new identity, and seek life in Christ as God desires to grow them. So the fastest way to the nations is to our neighbors. And who embodies this perfectly for us? Jesus. When Jesus wanted to bring the gospel, he went to a dusty town of Nazareth. Jesus went to the nations by going to one neighborhood. And that's true for us too. The incarnation is beautifully local. So if the Great Commission feels overwhelming, a task for the spiritual elite, I want it to feel tangible for you. Where are you going to be this week where you can have an influence for Christ? And the second question is this. Are you stagnating or growing? How long have you been walking with Christ? Weeks? Months? Years? Decades? For many of us? Do you feel like you've continued a a process of growth? Or do you feel like there's been some stagnation and and it kind of has slowed down? Is your life plagued by a kind of spiritual adolescence? Or are you growing into maturity in Christ? There's two ways at the village where we really desire to help people grow in their relationship with Christ. And the first we talk about regularly, it's home groups. We believe that being involved in gospel-centered community is an absolutely essential element of discipleship. So actually, whether it's a home group or another group of friends that's pursuing Christ together, it doesn't matter so much to us. We just want you to be involved in gospel-centered community, studying the scriptures together, seeking to mortify sin and to live a new life in Christ. If you're not, if you're not in gospel-centered community, I would just encourage you, that's a great pathway to start pursuing growth and not stagnation in Christ. Another opportunity is to get involved in one of our men's or women's Bible studies. I'm blown away at the current feedback for the men's and women's Bible studies. The women have over 1,000 people registered, and the men have about 200 people registered, just for a little data point for an early point in the sermon. <laughs> and we're doing a book of the Bible that I'm sure, and this again, this is not to, to guilt or shame, we're doing First and Second Samuel, first semester and second semester. I imagine many of us haven't read First or Second Samuel, and that's okay. You shouldn't feel guilt or shame over that. But what an awesome opportunity to get to know a huge part of your Bible and the story of what God has done in the world. And so I'd invite you to, perhaps it's with a home group or with friends, jump into one of those classes and become a disciple through studying Scripture together in community. Those classes start in September. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to remind you of just a few brief things as we wrap up. First, if you are a spiritual orphan, you can be adopted by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, receiving a new identity and forgiveness of sins, freely and fully forgiven. Come home. We want you to be a part of this family. You are wanted here and welcome. You don't have to strive after another identity. You can simply be a brother or sister with us. We want you here. If you are a son or a daughter, has been adopted by God, and you're wanting to grow 
I would ask that you would just pursue either one of these avenues we've laid out here or others. Jesus wants you to be a teacher of his gospel so that we could teach the nations to obey the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in your grace and mercy, you have seen fit to bring us into Christ, this glorious gospel of good news that there is forgiveness of sin, that there is hope in Christ. I pray that you would find the Village Church, all of our members at the Village Church, to be a place where spiritual orphans are coming home to find their home in you, to find their identity shaped by you, to be given a new name, a new story, a a new past, present, and future. I also pray for those of us who've been walking with Christ for a while. I ask that you would never allow us to grow bored in the Christian life or to stagnate in the Christian life. But would you, by whatever means necessary, would you grow us into Christ? We desire more of him. We want to look more like him tomorrow than we do today and more today than we did yesterday. We know this is only possible if you do it. So we ask that you would. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.